Welcome to another episode of Cross-Section, the official podcast of the Section on Neonatal Perinatal Medicine of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The Neonatal Section represents more than 3,500 neonatologists and clinicians who are committed to caring for the nation's smallest and most vulnerable patients. In Cross-Section, we hear firsthand from some of those individuals about their work. Welcome everyone to the latest edition of the Cross-Section podcast coming to you from the section on neonatal perinatal medicine of the American Academy of Pediatrics. We've had a bit of a break since the last Cross-Section podcast and, and we're looking forward to reconnecting with you uh, with, with a topic that is really very important. I'm joined today by four members of our community. Our featured guest is Dr. William O'Hare, who has more than 40 years of experience working with data from the Census Bureau in state government, nonprofit organizations, and universities. He's the author of two books and many articles based on census data, and specifically on the undercount of young children in the census. Dr. O'Hare was formerly a consultant to the U.S. Census Bureau, and he's currently a consultant to the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, the Partnership for America's Children, and the Population Reference Bureau. For 15 years, Dr. O'Hare also ran Kids Count, a project of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Dr. O'Hare, welcome. Thank you very much. We are also joined by three members of the section on neonatal perinatal medicine. Dr. Shettle Shaw is the co-chair of the uh, advocacy subcommittee of the section, and he is the district two representative to the executive committee of of the section. Uh, Shettle, welcome. And then we are joined by two members of the trainees and early career neonatologists group, uh, also within the section on neonatal perinatal medicine. Jen Guile is a current resident in the Boston Combined Residency Program at Boston Children's Hospital, and she's an incoming fellow of the Harvard Neonatal Perinatal Medicine Program. We'll look forward to welcoming you there and here, Jen. Ashley Luck is an assistant professor of pediatrics at George Washington University and at Children's National Medical Center, and she is the current chair of the Trainees and Early Career Neonatologists group. So uh, welcome. I am going to turn it over to Dr. Shaw to introduce the advocacy aspects of the topic we'll be discussing today. Shuttle. Thank you, John. Um, The goal of this podcast is to really invest 20 minutes to 30 minutes of your time understanding the importance of the U.S. Census in all the work we do as neonatologists. Very often, we spend our days within the four walls of our intensive care units and are focused on all of the details that are required to keep a premature baby alive. And we sometimes forget the broader societal ramifications and the broader context into which our work fits. The goal of this podcast is to educate neonatologists about the importance of the census and to give you the information you need so that as you go back to your hospitals and back to your intensive care unit, you can educate your staff and the parents of the babies for whom we all care for about why it's important to make sure census forms are filled out in a timely and accurate manner. The goal of this is also to remind everyone about the broad role that the neonatal perinatal section has within the American Academy of Pediatrics when it comes to advocacy. It's not just about advocacy for children. It's not just about advocacy for babies or advocacy for neonatologists. It's about making sure that our voices are heard within the broader community of child health. Great. So 
This is Ashley Luck, TCAN Chair. I have heard a lot about the census. And Dr. O'Hare, I think what would be really helpful for me is can you explain a little bit about what your role has been with the census, what it is that you do? Because it's in the news a lot and there's all these rumors that go around about it. And it's really great to hear from someone who we know we can trust and that the information that we're going to get today is valid. Uh, well, thank you, Ashley. Uh, there's kind of two questions there, I think, in my mind. One is what I've been doing, and secondly, a little more about the census. I've been working with the Census Bureau, actually, for 40 years. I don't have any colleagues there, and I use the census data a lot in my jobs. Uh, a little background in this. In 2011, I spent two years at the Census Bureau as a research fellow and examining the undercount of young children in the census and uncovered uh, a lot of data and information there that was laying there but hadn't been recognized and kind of been working with that uh, data and information for the last uh, nine years or so, I guess, uh, including being a consultant to the Census Bureau and some of the work, research work they've been doing and a little bit about the communication. So that's a little bit about my background and involvement in the census. But it sounded like there was another questionnaire about how the census is being conducted. Is that fair? Yeah, or even just why does it matter to the everyday American citizen? Why should we care about this? Okay, let me start with that one first. Um, first of all, and I think this audience can appreciate accurate data, that uh, getting a count of everyone, a more complete and accurate count of everyone and their characteristics is very useful for planning, for doing research, for understanding what kind of issues may be facing a state or a community coming down the road based on the demographic data. So that's one obvious answer to why it's important. Another one that really resonates with a lot of people, I think, is the amount of money that is um, uh, given out by the federal government to states and localities based on census counts. And to put out a couple of factoids on that, the in, in fiscal year 2016, about $1.5 trillion in federal government money was given to states and localities based, at least in part, on census data. Um, and if you divide that $1.5 trillion by the population of the country, 300 million, 330 million or so, it works out to be about $4,500 per person per year. So this is not quite uh, the way you want to calculate this if you had all the data you wanted, but basically, when a jurisdiction doesn't count a person, including young children, that jurisdiction will probably lose forty to fifty thousand dollars over the ten-year period after the census. Uh, things for schools and healthcare and clinics and roads and lots of things that people want. So two things, I guess: accurate data and money for the kind of things that people in local communities want. Um, and then, so this is uh, Jen Guile here. Could you talk a little bit more on the other impacts of the census on our day-to-day -day life and how this might impact things such as political representation? Well, certainly political representation is uh, one of the keystones of the census. In fact, the constitutional reason for the census, which started in 1790, uh, has, was the distribution of seats in Congress. The U.S. House of Representatives seats are given out based on the count of the census population. So it's used there to give out uh, seats in Congress, but equally important that its census data are used to draw political districts for things like state representatives, city councils, county commissioners, library boards. My estimate is about 10, over 10,000 single member districts 
that will be, have to be redrawn after the next census to meet the one person, one vote principle, and those will depend on the census count. So communities that don't get counted fully don't get their fair share of political power. Wow, did I catch that right? That you said it's about 40 to 50 grand for each person that a community would lose if someone, one person is not counted? That's right. That's a rough estimate over a 10-year period because these census data in 2020 that we're collecting right now won't be updated until 2030 with a complete count. Um, there are some post-census estimates and so on, but uh, as I said, uh, it's probably in the neighborhood of four or $5,000 per person per year. So after 10 years, you're talking $40,000, $50,000. And as uh, you and the listeners here can imagine, if you're a, a principal in a school or running an agency, an extra $40,000 or $50,000 could be very helpful. And if you miss 10 people, it's 10 times that amount. That's pretty striking. So, I mean, do we have any idea about how many people we're missing right now? Like, do we know how many of them are children or how bad is it? Are there certain groups that we know are not being counted? Uh, yes, the answer to that, yes, 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 I guess. And let me give you a, kind of a, a little broad background on that issue. I'm particularly focusing on young children and then the youngest children. Um, in 2010, there were about 2.2 million young children, by young children I mean under age five, 2.2 million young children missed in the census, about 10%. To be clear, the census double counted about a little over a million, so the net undercount was only a million. It doesn't sound quite as bad, but either, either way, the omissions and the net undercount for young children were much, much higher than any other age group in the 2010 census. That sets young children apart from other, most other demographic groups in terms of census accuracy and is a critical problem. One other part I'll mention here is that over the last, well, in 1980, the net undercount of young children was about one and a half percent. And in 2010, it was about four and a half percent. So that's one critical factoid, I guess, four and a half percent, net undercount of four and a half percent of young children. I know I'm throwing a lot of data out here, but uh, uh, the data, the, the detailed statistics are probably not as important as knowing that young children are missed at a very high rate. And taking that down to the youngest children under a year old, the data that I've seen from that from the Census Bureau suggests that as much as 20 or 25 percent of the children born in the three or four months just prior to the census are missed in the census. And so the the most vulnerable group, the youngest, not only vulnerable in many ways that your listeners will know about, but they're also most vulnerable in terms of being missed in the census. What about if somebody moves? Like I'm moving this summer. What happens if I'm moving in the middle of the, my census count? Or even if I answer where I'm at and then I move and then I'm in a new place, does my money go where I go? <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't, but that'll probably, hopefully someone else will move into your house. And so it kind of works itself out that way. So you're counted as of April, you're supposed to be counted as of April 1st. So wherever you were living on April 1st is where you should have responded to the census and be counted. And even people who haven't responded yet, when they do respond, either by responding on the internet or through a paper questionnaire, or ultimately, once this self-response phase is over, the Census Bureau will be sending out enumerators to households to collect data from people who did not self-respond. That phase, incidentally, has been postponed because of the coronavirus and now won't start until August, August, September, August, September and October. They'll be going door to door to try and get data 
from people who haven't responded, but they'll be asking for data as of April 1st to keep everything consistent. So just to be clear, in terms of counting babies and young children, um, what is the birth date um, that would be the cutoff for them to be counted? April 1st. If they were born before April 1st, they're supposed to be counted. If they're born after April 1st, they're not supposed to be counted. If they're born on April 1st, I believe they are supposed to be counted. And then, um, is there any increased impact of undercounting on particular groups, um, specifically groups um, that might experience disparities in terms of access to healthcare, school, or government programs? It's a great question, and the answer, unfortunately, is yes. And it's the data where we have the clearest data is the undercount of Black and Hispanic young children is about twice as high as that of whites in the neighborhood of six or seven percent net undercount for young black and young Hispanic children. By young, I mean under age five. And uh, there's also a lot of evidence to suggest that poor families tend to be missed more often than those who are not poor. So all of those suggest that he, the kids who probably need to be counted the most and need the most um, services and support are the ones that are not gonna get their fair share because they're missed in the census. So, I mean, really, we need to be talking to our families in the unit about making sure that they've included, you know, their baby that's there in front of us in their census reporting. I, that's, I think that's true. At this point, as I said, uh, you know, if they were born before April 1st, if they weren't, then uh, the child's not supposed to be counted if they're born after April 1st. But uh, I suspect they still be seeing a lot of those babies who were born before April 1st. And I think, you know, I know those people and your uh, staff have a lot of things going on, a lot of things on their mind, but to the extent that you can remind them of the importance of getting that young child counted, and particularly the money that's involved, that seems to resonate with people more than any other thing. And those people don't recognize it. You know, not surprisingly, I guess, people don't know how much the census is tied to local finances. Right. I mean, we could tell our families, you know, they might be a baby now, but in five years, they'll be in kindergarten, and we want them to count so that their school can get that money. Uh, it makes exactly. Sense. But what about at the national and local level? Because I mean, we should all be doing that on an individual label, uh, individual level. But what is happening at a, a greater sort of broader scope to try and increase census participation? Good question. Let me start with one brick, kind of broad answer to that. And I, I've been following the census since 1970, and there's no doubt in my mind that the 2020 census, even before the coronavirus was the most difficult in my lifetime. And now with this coronavirus problems, it's even more so. So um, so I think everything we can do to help get a better count in 2020 will be useful. The Census Bureau is trying hard to get everybody to be counted. Um, they've had a lot of problems with underfunding moving up to the 2020 census. And there, I think we talked earlier about this issue of trying to add a session on a question on citizenship to the questionnaire, which eventually got excluded by the Supreme Court. But there's been a lot of um, issues that raise fears in many of our communities. That's a challenge that the Census Bureau is trying to overcome. And uh, so everything we can do to support the Bureau in getting a complete count is helpful. But I think even more helpful or as helpful is a lot of the work going on outside of the Census Bureau. And I just want to mention a couple of things going on there and places that your listeners might want to go for more resources. The, um, the Partnership for America's Children, 
the network of state and local advocates has taken on the 2020 census as a big issue and has developed a website called Count All Kids. So if you Google Count All Kids, it will take you to that website where they've been posting a lot of uh, material that people can use, toolkits, data, uh, and connecting people to other advocacy groups that might be useful in their local state or local um, area. So that's one source of information and one uh, network and uh, uh, effort that has been new and effective. A second one is your group, I guess, the American Academy of Pediatricians have been uh, very active on this issue. They have a some kind of census subgroup, or I'm not sure what exactly what it's called, but I know they are very involved. In fact, I'm I'm looking at a uh, little button or badge right in front of me that says every child counts. It's got a picture of young children. It's got the American Academy of Pediatricians at the bottom. And I think that's a very effective thing if you can get that to the pediatricians and their staff to wear. It, I think, first of all, highlights one of our values, every child is important. And secondly, it's a great way to open up a conversation about the importance of being counted in the census. And uh, that's just one avenue that the AAP is uh, using to reach out. I know they've got a lot of other material designed particularly for pediatricians and the people in the offices of pediatricians. So those are a couple of um, efforts that I think are particularly important for, for the listeners. So I've learned a lot just in this few minutes we've been talking. We've talked about what is the census, why it's so important, how it infects, how it affects the individual as well as a family. We've reinforced that all of us should be talking to our NICU families about it and explaining sort of why every baby born on or before April 1st needs to be counted. But there's still people who might not want to fill it out. And there's probably families who are hesitant still. And I have a hunch based on what I've heard on the news that things like immigration, uh, maybe there's some misconceptions about the census and how it's attached to immigration or perhaps landlords and, you know, people knowing who's in a residence, you know, what are some of the, the really tough sticky reasons why people might not be filling out their census? Uh, well, you talked about misperceptions. Let me just mention a couple of those that I think are particularly problematic this census cycle. Uh, you talked about the fact that uh, if you're in the immigrant community, particularly with the citizenship question, and uh, on that note, even though the citizenship question has been taken off the census questionnaire by the Supreme Court, a recent uh, January survey by the National Association of Latino Elected Officials of survey of uh, Latino adults that almost half of them still thought that the citizenship question was on the census. So there's still a lot of misunderstanding and fear along uh, with respect to the census and the administration on that issue. The other part of misunderstanding that has only recently come to light, but I think is really impactful, is that a survey that the Count All Kids group did last summer found that almost 20% of low-income families with a young child under five only 20%, about 20% were not sure that young children were supposed to be included in the census. There's a, a, a group of people who don't understand why the federal government needs to know about this young child and uh, others who don't trust the government, federal government including, and don't want the young child, a young child included. So the fact that a large segment of adults 
are not even aware that young children are supposed to be included in the census probably helps explain why a lot of them are missed in the census. So what if we have a family who's ready to fill it out and they don't know where their paper is, they lost that thing in the mail, they haven't gotten a call, whatever reason, where should we be sending them? My2020census.gov. When the Bureau sends out an invitation to participate, they include a, I think it's a 12-digit unique code for that housing unit. Keep in, keep in mind that the Bureau not only has to count people, but they have to count them in the right housing unit, the right place every time. So hopefully people got that unique um, uh, code for their housing unit and used that when they responded. But if they lost that and don't have it, they can still respond by putting in their address and the Bureau will then match that address they put in to make sure no one else has responded to that address and they can fill out the census form online that way. They can also call in and talk to someone and fill out a census form that way, particularly people who may not be uh, comfortable with English. There are 12 different languages, uh, the phone numbers they can call in with 12 different languages. And so that's another possibility. So we'll make sure that we tell all our families that they need to go to my 2020census.gov so that way they can make sure every baby is counted and that our communities get the funding and the representation that we need. Yes. Yes. Let me just, if I got a minute, just a, a couple other uh, key programs that are funded by the census or money to get out by the census. You probably Medicaid, which is probably important to a lot of your providers. There's about $65 billion in 2016 for children that were given out based on census. The state child health insurance program, almost $14 billion. The WIC program, about $6.5 billion. Uh, healthcare centers, $4.3 billion. That's just a sample of some of the programs that use census data to distribute money to states and localities. And if anybody is interested in this topic, there is a website called Counting for Dollars. Pretty simple, Counting for Dollars. If you Google that, it'll take you to this website that has a lot of detail on 315 programs and many of them sorted out by states and some by localities in terms of the amount of money linked to the census. So for local advocacy or state advocacy, that's often helpful. All right, well, this has been extremely educational as well as the truth and nothing but the truth. And uh, also from national expertise, international expertise. So we're super grateful that we were able to have this chat with you. And I know a lot of our members now are much more empowered and educated and likely to go advocate to make sure that every baby counts. Um, thank you so much for helping us put this together. Dr. Shaw, Dr. Zapanzik, Dr. Liu. I know Jen and I are very excited and, and grateful that we got to share a car ride, maybe a workout on the treadmill or something with the section member who's been listening along. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate your advocacy.